0: We are continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount, so if you'll be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 5, we will be reading the second beatitude in just a moment. Did you know that uh, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there were what was called professional mourners? Both the prophets Amos and Jeremiah speak of calling the women to weep and wail. They were paid by the people to come at the Uh, at the graveside or at the uh, home of someone to mourn along with the family. And the more that mourned, the more dignified, of course, or prestigious the individual was. In the Old Testament, you had scenes like they mourned for Moses or Jacob for 30 days. That was not the normal period of time. The normal period was about seven days. But because of the prestige of these men, the mourning for their death was Longer. In the New Testament, we come to a a scene in Mark chapter 5 where Jesus comes to the home of Jairus. His daughter had passed away, and Jesus comes, and of course, we know that he's going to raise her, but Jairus doesn't know that. And when Jesus comes, there is a public spectacle. There is a great commotion of people weeping and wailing very loudly. Today, these kinds of things are expected to be done in private. You may remember some years ago, I don't know how many still have it, but some years ago, some funeral homes had a separate room for the family. That is, it was a side room where they could see what was going on in the service, but the rest of the people that were there for the funeral could not see the family. And the idea then was that the family could grieve, they could mourn in private and not be seen by everyone else. I always thought that was rather odd. I always thought uh, people should be able to see the family, and there's no problem with mourning in public. But imagine today if, if your child said to you, you know what I want to do when I grow up? I want to be a professional mourner. I want to get a degree in mourning if there is such a thing, which of course there is not, but that's what I want to do for a living. I want to mourn. I want to grieve deeply. The fact that we don't have this is seen in the changes I've seen in funerals. Nowadays, more often than not, and you've seen this, they're no longer funerals. They are celebrations of life. And I get that. I get that, especially in a case where someone has lived a long and faithful life and has died at an older age, that we can indeed celebrate the faithfulness of their lives. And so I understand that. But I also think there's an aspect to this where we simply don't want to mourn anymore. We don't want to grieve. And so we kid ourselves into believing that we're not going to even at a funeral. We can't stomach it, which is why some of you simply refuse to go to funerals. It's why you don't want to sit by the bedside of someone who is passing away. And it's why people say things like, I would rather remember them as they were than have to see them in this state. We see something similar in the church. That is when you come on a Sunday morning, your expectations are that you are going to be encouraged, you are going to be uplifted. That is why we basically insist that the music, the worship songs we hear and sing are uplifting. And they are joyful. And we expect the same thing out of the sermon. That is, we don't want to gather for church on a Sunday morning and hear about sin or even worse. Now, granted, there should be praise and joy in our worship services. There certainly ought to be such things in our hearts. But the writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us that there is a time for laughter. But there's also a time to weep. He also says there is a time to dance, that is to rejoice, but there is also a time to mourn. As you know, if you grew up in a Baptist church, dancing used to be outlawed. I'm afraid nowadays mourning is outlawed. We simply don't want to do it. Now, I realize that my topic today is not high on your priority list. I actually realized that if you had looked ahead, you might not have even come because you don't want to hear about this. And frankly, it's not the top of my list to preach either. I said last week when we began this that the first two or three are not going to be on your resolution list. These are not things that you put on your goals for a new year. You didn't even think about this one which is simply an indication of just how radical the Sermon on the Mount really is. And perhaps how far we have departed from the kingdom living that Jesus is talking about. So let's look at Matthew chapter 5. Verse 4 is going to be our emphasis, and that's what's going to be on the screen. But since it's so brief, I'm going to go ahead and read what we looked at last week, and then we'll focus on verse 4. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then our verse for today, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Since we've just started this, and perhaps some of you weren't here last week, Others won't remember, so let me remind us. I won't do this every week, but let me remind us of where we were last week. We said that Jesus is preaching this Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, on sort of a hillside. It's not a mountain as we would normally think of. It's just an elevated spot so that Jesus can speak to the crowds and his voice will carry and he is speaking both to the disciples, that is his inner core, and the crowds are hearing it as well. And we know this because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds recognize that he is speaking as one who has authority. They have come because of all of the healing and the miracles that he is doing. Some have come, no doubt, to see whether or not he was the Messiah. Others just to see the show, to, to be a part of what was going on. And then he spoke that first beatitude. And that first beatitude ended with the kingdom of heaven. And we said that the last beatitude ends with that same thing, which means everything in between is somehow talking about the kingdom of heaven. So this sermon is not a list of ethical standards for all to follow. Neither is it such a high standard that none of us should follow. Rather, these are statements for followers of Christ, That is, this is saying something about how we are to live as faithful followers of Jesus. As you know, each of the statements begin with the word blessed. And we said that that is not happiness, even though some of your translations may use that word. We said it is much deeper than that. It is not temporary. It is not superficial. Instead, it speaks of a deep and abiding satisfaction that can come only from God. Plus, the word has the idea of acceptance or approval from God. Which, of course, begs the question, whose approval are we seeking? Whose eyes do we want to catch? Who do we want to make sure is pleased with the way we are living our lives? And, of course, the answer is God, and he gives us promises here that if we live this kind of lifestyle within the kingdom of God, we will be satisfied. And I said, these are radical. Last week we talked about being spiritually poor. That is being beggarly poor as some commentators define it. Being poor in spirit because we are recognizing our sin and thus our need for a Savior. And the second beatitude is going to naturally follow from that first. So that being said, this morning we are talking about not spiritual poverty, but spiritual mourning. That's clearly a paradoxical statement here. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. A paradox is a statement that seems to be contradictory, that seems like it can't be true. Someone has defined a paradox as a truth standing on its head calling for attention. That is, it's worded in such a way that we really do need to pay attention to what is being said. How in the world can we find blessing in tears? How can there be lasting satisfaction in deep mourning? Well, that is what we want to talk about this morning. And as we start with this, we need to start where we did last week. And that is with what this doesn't mean. So I want to start with the arenas of spiritual mourning. That is, in what areas of our lives are we talking about here? And I want to say, first of all, what we are not talking about. Jesus is not calling for a grim, cheerless form of Christianity. He is not saying that we must walk around with a sour disposition. Joy is still part of the Christian life. In fact, it is a fruit of the Spirit. So no one is saying that we ought to walk around with no joy. Neither is he talking here about tears over the difficulties in life. Though, of course, those may come. And those happen to all of us at points in our lives. That's simply not what he's talking about here. Mourning in and of itself does not lead to blessing. We can think of a couple of Old Testament examples. Amnon mourned that his lust for Tamar was not satisfied. We also see that Ahab mourned that he could not have Naboth's vineyard. In our current day, we might say that a criminal mourns that he was caught and must pay the consequences. A politician might mourn the fact that he or she is no longer in power. But these kinds of mourning are not promised blessings here. And so I think the first arena that Jesus is referring to, and perhaps the most prominent, and the one we talked about last week as well, and that is the arena of conversion. When we are poor in spirit, we said that did not refer to material poverty. So of course, course mourning here does not refer to physical mourning. He is not promising here that when you stand by the graveside of a loved one and mourn their death, that he will comfort you. Now, he will, and that is promised elsewhere. But that is simply not what he's talking about here. Christ does comfort us in all of our weaknesses, in all of our times of sadness. But specifically here, he's talking about something else. He's talking about those who mourn their sin. And that is why this naturally flows from the first beatitude. We are poor in spirit. That is, we recognize we are beggars in need of a Savior because we are sinners separated from God. And we said last week that that's not a one-time thing. We keep on doing that. And when we do that, then we come to understand that we must mourn over that sin. We might even say that spiritual poverty is intellectual. We recognize it. But spiritual mourning is our emotional response to that intellectual understanding genuine conversion must be preceded by godly sorrow it is not enough just to say categorically well I know that I'm a sinner there must be a recognition that sin is indeed serious and that is what the cross boldly proclaims we are not guilty of minor infractions We are not guilty of level three violations like a college coach might be, and therefore he gets a slap on the wrist. We are guilty of major infractions that cannot be swept under the rug and therefore must be dealt with rather than denied. I mean, that is why Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross because our sins were a serious problem that we could do nothing about. And when we truly understand that, it leads to spiritual mourning. When Peter preached his sermon on the day of Pentecost, the crowd was said to be cut to the heart. They were convicted by the words that he said, convicted by their own sin, and therefore they cried out with a sense of urgency What must we do to be saved? We cannot confine the preaching of the gospel to the positive elements. We dare not simply say to people, here are the benefits for your life if you will believe in Jesus. In spite of the fact that you are well aware that there are prominent preachers who not only do that, but they loudly proclaim they do that. Come to my church and you won't hear anything about sin or or problems like that because we're going to encourage you and uplift you and there is a place for that. That is part of the gospel, but it is just part and we dare not take the other part of the gospel away. We must honestly deal with our sin by mourning over it, which leads to conversion. The second arena of spiritual mourning here is the church. Now, if the church is what we always say it is, and that it is is a body of believers, so the church is not a building, it is you and I as a group of believers And if as individuals we must mourn over our sin, then it certainly makes sense that as a church body, we ought to do the same thing. As was true in the first beatitude, it is also true here. We do this individually, but we ought to be doing it corporately. Because we continue to sin after salvation, we are to continue to mourn our sin. That's why Martin Luther in his 95 Theses The first thesis was that repentance ought to be an ongoing element in the life of every believer. That is, it's not just a one-time thing so that it leads to conversion, though it does, but it is an ongoing element of our walk with Christ because we continue to sin, we must continue to mourn over sin. I think there's a place to say there ought to be more tears in the church rather than just laughter. We talk about revival occasionally and perhaps you're praying for it, but we need to understand that genuine revival is always preceded by brokenness or mourning over sin. So many people want a tolerant and funny Jesus who draws people into the kingdom with his, with his winsome ways and they expect preachers to do likewise. We want a charismatic orator who will inspire us and there's a place for that. But we also must need to understand that we must weep over our sin. You know, there's no statement in the New Testament that Jesus ever laughed. I'm not saying he didn't. Don't get me wrong. I'm simply saying it's not recorded. But there are several occasions where we see and hear Jesus weeping. He wept at the unbelief of the people when he came to the tomb of Lazarus. He wept over the city of Jerusalem, and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. He was mourning the unbelief of those he came to save. You know, in my years of ministry, this might shock you, but in my years of ministry, I've heard a lot of complaints. I've heard people talk about this or that in the church Uh, They've complained about the music. It's too contemporary or it's not contemporary enough. I've heard complaints about what the young people should or should not be wearing. I've heard complaints about clapping or not clapping in the church. I certainly heard complaints about financial issues, whether we're spending too much or not enough or not on the right things. I've heard complaints about one class having more comfortable chairs than another class. And the list goes on and on. But in all my years of ministry, not a single person has come to me with the complaint that we don't mourn our sin as a body. I've never heard that one. No one's ever come to me and said, preacher, why don't we mourn over our sin? We ought to understand that as a church, we need to do this together. So there is the arena of conversion there is the arena of the church and then I'll say very briefly there ought to be an arena for our community or we might even expand it and say the arena of our country now here again we are quick to point out the sins of others we are very good at pointing out what is going wrong in our nation because that's easy to do that's someone else's fault But what I'm talking about is the fact that we ought to be grieved and mourn over these things. We've grown so accustomed to the violence and to the evil that it doesn't affect us any longer. That we can watch the news. As long as it doesn't pertain to us personally, it doesn't bother us. We can read the stories. We can can see the pictures. And as long as it doesn't hit home to us personally then it really doesn't grieve us. We've lost sight of the fact that our neighbors, we've lost sight of the fact that the people around us are lost and in need of a Savior, and that's why they are acting the way they are acting. And we don't grieve or mourn the fact that they are separated from God. I mean, when's the last time you shed tears over a family member or friend who does not know Jesus? And I ask myself the same question because I'm in the same boat as you. When we went through COVID and I'm sick and tired of talking about it, I understand you are probably as well, but we had that debate about the vaccines. And I don't want to bring that back up, but here's what I do want to say. We ought not to be vaccinated against the reality of sin. We ought not come to the place where we're immune to it because we've been inoculated and therefore no longer think about it. So these three areas are arenas in which we ought to mourn. But secondly, I want to talk about some barriers to spiritual mourning because even though we know this is in the Word, as radical as it is, and even though we've talked about these arenas, the fact of the matter is we probably still don't mourn our sin. So what's holding us back? Well, I would say one of the barriers is love. And by that, I mean multiple things. I mean, maybe we don't love God as much as we say we do. Because if we love God, we will at the same time hate the things that he hates. And therefore, as we grow closer to God, we will mourn the sin that has separated us and others from him. So our lack of mourning might just be a direct result of our lack of love. I've told you this before, but I still remember an old professor that I had in seminary. I mean, even at that time, he was in his early 90s, and he was a brilliant man. He knew all of the, well, not all, but he knew many ancient languages. He knew Aramaic and Ugaritic, other languages that I can't even pronounce. He was just a brilliant scholar. And so in chapel one day, they were asking him questions about his walk with the Lord for all of those years, and I well remember someone asking him in all of those years of following the Lord, what one thing have you learned that you could share with us? What is the greatest lesson you've learned? And you could just sort of sense us young people Soon to be preachers on the edge of our seat, waiting for some spiritual nugget from this brilliant scholar. And the answer to the question that he gave was this What is the greatest thing you've learned in all of those years of following the Lord? And his answer was, How sinful I am. And I thought to myself, How could he say that? I mean, I didn't picture him at home in the evenings watching something he shouldn't be watching. I didn't picture him having thoughts that he shouldn't think. I knew I struggled with those things, but I I didn't picture him doing that. And yet his answer was, how sinful I am. He didn't boast of his knowledge. He didn't boast of his faithful service to God for all of those decades. There was no pride in his voice because he had learned in faithfully walking with the Lord how repulsive sin is to God. And the more he knew and loved God, the more he mourned his own sinfulness. So I think potentially our lack of love for God is one of the barriers to mourning. But I think we could also say it's a lack of love for others. I mean, ours is a selfish society. I don't think anybody will argue with me on that. We think first and foremost about our own interests. We don't think primarily about our community. We don't think primarily about our country. We don't think primarily about our fellow believers at church. We think first and foremost about ourselves. And that's why it's difficult to mourn sin in these other arenas. So long as the violence of our city doesn't affect me personally, then I'm probably not going to mourn it. So long as the evil around us doesn't come home to my house then I'm probably not going to mourn it. And we could go through all of the other moral and ethical issues that we are facing today. It's impossible to mourn the sin of others while we are primarily thinking about ourselves. And then I also need to add that, frankly, we have to admit that sometimes we just love our sin, right? I mean, the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season, and so we have to acknowledge that sometimes we don't mourn sin because we're enjoying it. Sometimes we're not grieved over our sins because we're, we're fine being involved in it. After all, God is a gracious and forgiving God. And as long as we continue to laugh at or enjoy our sin, then this whole idea of mourning over sin is certainly going to seem radical to us and uncalled for. We've grown accustomed to laughing rather than genuine mourning. And if we continue to deny our sin, it makes forgiveness impossible. I mean, we must acknowledge our spiritual poverty, and then we must come to mourn that sin because it is serious. You see, we we tend to think, well, I haven't committed any of the big ones. And therefore, it's not all that important. But that's simply not the case. All sin separates us from God. No, you might not be guilty of some of the more serious ones, but you're guilty nevertheless. And the last barrier I would mention is, is simply the barrier of procrastination. That is, you know, what he's saying is, is probably true. But I don't want to deal with it today. I mean, today's a, today's a day of joy. Today's a day of rejoicing. I'll, I'll deal with that tomorrow. I was very good at procrastinating when I was younger. I still struggle with it. But I could could put anything off, especially my schoolwork. I could put it off to the very last minute and then hurriedly get it done. And that's what some of us do when it comes to this idea of mourning our sin. Okay, I recognize that Jesus says that in the Sermon on the Mount, but that's something for another day. I'll deal with that tomorrow. And I'm not talking here about adding on the phrase to our prayers, Lord, forgive me all my sins. The fact that we put that on the end of our prayers tells us how superficial we are when it comes to mourning and grieving our sins. Because we don't even bother naming them. We don't even bother thinking about what sins we have committed. We just have this blanket statement that we throw out at the end of all of our prayers, Lord, forgive me of all my sins. And then we get up and go our way. Well, we need to conclude by talking about the promise for spiritual mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There is a blessing here. There is a satisfaction that Jesus promises. Salvation and sanctification are not possible without these two steps of spiritual poverty and spiritual mourning. And here Jesus gives us the promise of comfort. Again, Not at a funeral, though that is found elsewhere. The Bible does say that, but it's not what it's talking about right here. So what kind of comfort is Jesus talking about? Well, first and foremost, I would say that he's talking about comfort from the penalty of sin. I mean, if this whole verse is dealing with sin, then we would expect that the promise of comfort is also going to deal with sin. Now, comfort from the penalty of sin does not mean that the consequences are removed. We get those two things confused. We sometimes think that forgiveness means we do not have to suffer the consequences. But that is simply not the case. Now, God can and sometimes does take away the consequences, but sometimes he leaves us to the natural consequences of our sin so that we can experience that and learn from it. So I am not saying that you will find comfort by removing all of the consequences, but the penalty will be removed. That is why Paul can say, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Comfort from mourning over our sins means that we are forgiven for, for those sins. It means that we have the experience of forgiveness and we are reconciled to God. That is why we can have satisfaction, which is, again is what the word blessed means. But it also means that we will find comfort from the power of sin. Now here again, I'm not saying that you will never sin again. I'm not saying that if you properly mourn your sin that you will never fall prey to temptation again. But what I am saying is that we have the Holy Spirit living within us. Therefore, we do have the power to overcome sin and live in victory, even in the midst of our society. Paul says this. He says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. We sang about that earlier. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Now, the question is, which one do we believe? Do we believe the, own vo- the, the voice in our own head that says, I can't do it. The temptation's too great. You've said that. I have to. The temptation is just too great. I might as well give in. Or do we believe what the scripture says? There is no temptation that has overcome you, but such as is common to man. And God will with that also provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. The cross of Jesus Christ abolished the penalty and the power of sin such that the Bible now says that we can walk by the spirit so that we will not fulfill the lust or the desires of the flesh. And one day, that day is not yet, But one day we will have even the the comfort of the very presence of sin being abolished. It will be gone and we will live with God forever. I want to conclude by introducing you to a few people. You know them. We start with the Old Testament prophet Isaiah in chapter 6 of his book. He has a vision of God. A vision of God so glorious and majestic that he recognizes the holiness of God and in response he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah recognized his sinfulness and was mourning over it. And then we go to the Old Testament city of Nineveh where there is a reluctant prophet named Jonah Who, though he does not want to, he's preaching to that city. And he doesn't want to because he knows that God is a gracious and forgiving God. And frankly, he doesn't want those people to come to God. What a great prophet, right? He doesn't want them to respond. But they do. And the Bible says, then the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And then the word uh, reached the king of Nineveh. He also arose from the throne, laid aside his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. That was a form of mourning in those days. Let's move to the New Testament. Peter, a fisherman by trade and of course one of the disciples by calling, early in, his, in the ministry of Jesus, Peter and his companions had fished all night like they were prone to do, only this time they had caught nothing. And when they're coming back to shore in the morning, tired, no doubt, frustrated as well. This was their livelihood, and they'd spent all night catching nothing. And there's Jesus on the seashore, and Jesus tells them to let their nets down. They do, because it's Jesus telling them to. And they catch so many fish that the boat's about to topple over or sink. How does Peter respond? Peter says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I mean, even the great apostle Paul struggled with sin. He acknowledges that in the book of Romans. He said, What I want to do, I often don't do. And the things I don't want to do, that's the thing I, I wind up doing. And finally, in desperation, he cries out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And his answer Is the verse I mentioned earlier, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And that's what it means to be blessed for our spiritual mourning. And isn't that a comfort? To know that we've been forgiven of our sins, the penalty has been paid for, to know that that we now have the power to overcome sin through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And that we have the promise one day of being with God forever where the very presence of sin will be gone. Blessed indeed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you do not leave us in our sin. That instead you have provided a way for us to be forgiven and set free. And even though we continue to sin, you continue in your grace and mercy to forgive us. So thank you that in the midst of our mourning over sin, you promise comfort, the comfort that can only come through Christ. I pray that we would be grieved over our sin. I pray that we would not take it lightly, nor treat it superficially, but we would regularly come before you as individuals and as a body pleading for your forgiveness and rejoicing that you so freely offer it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.